Hi, this is Stephen Cherry for IEEE Spectrum's podcast, Fixing the Future. IBM is a remarkable company known for many things. The tabulating machines that calculated the 1890 U.S. Census, the mainframe computer, legitimizing the personal computer, and developing the software that beat the best in the world at chess and then Jeopardy. The company is, though, even more remarkable for the businesses it departed, often while they were still highly profitable, and pivoting to new ones before their profitability was obvious or assured. The pivot people are most familiar with is the one into the PC market in the 1980s and then out of it in the 2000s. In fact, August 2020 marks the 40th anniversary of the introduction of the IBM PC. Joining me to talk about it and IBM's other pivots, past and future, is a person uniquely qualified to do so. James Cortada is both a PhD historian and a 38-year veteran of IBM. He's currently a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota's Charles Babbage Institute, where he specializes in the history of technology. He was therefore perfectly positioned to be the author of the definitive corporate history of the company he used to work for in a book entitled IBM, The Rise and Fall and Reinvention of a Global Icon, which was published in 2019 by MIT Press. Cortada is also a contributor to IEEE Spectrum, most recently of an article entitled How the IBM PC Won, Then Lost the Personal Computer Market. And in that sense, I'm delighted to call him a colleague. He joins us by Skype. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Jim, IBM wasn't the first to personal computers. The first Apple computer was in 1976, and by 1981, the Apple II was firmly leading the market. Commodore, Tandy, Radio Shack, and Osborne also had popular computers. More importantly, there was already an operating system, Digital Research's CPM, that anchored the market, and quite a bit of software was available for every computer that could run it. WordStar, VisiCalc, BASIC, uh, there were C and Pascal compilers, there were assemblers. Uh, Because IBM was late to the PC market, it did two things that turned out to contribute mightily to its success. It was developed as a kind of skunkworks project that reported directly to the CEO of the company, and contrary to its corporate culture, it used off-the-shelf parts and software that the company didn't write. Uh, Just how revolutionary was that for IBM? I cannot think of another time before then when IBM had done that. Prior to that time, they they either bought a company that had something, a part or a software or technology, or it invented it itself in its own uh, research laboratories, which were always attached to uh, company manufacturing facilities so they could make it manufacturable. So this is a complete departure. The reason it was done is that uh, the IBM process for developing uh, new equipment would take too long to get a PC out into the marketplace. And they needed to move quickly once the decision had been made, and they could not uh, do it with the existing uh, process, so they needed a skunk works. And that's what uh, Frank Carey, the chairman of the board who ran the company, decided to do. Jim, those two factors, the skunk works aspect and the -the off-the-shelf construction, 
also led to the downfall of IBM and the PC market, right? Eventually, the, the PC business got folded into the regular chain of command and business structures. And by using Microsoft's operating system and Intel's chips without exclusive rights to them, the PC market came to be controlled by those two companies, and it became a commodity business. It became a commodity business, uh, not only because of uh, the chips and the operating system, but because other companies were able to put it all together at a lower cost than an IBM. Once the PC business in IBM got folded into the main corporate structure, its costs of operating went up. So it's nearly impossible to get the cost of manufacturing and sales down to a competitive level. And the marketplace also began to compete based on price because everybody had good machines. Selling businesses off as they became commoditized is a part of a pattern. Uh, it happened as well in 2002 when IBM sold its disk drive business to Hitachi. Uh, at that time, this one unit was contributing to the company something like a third of its annual profits. The interesting thing about DASD was IBM invented DASD. Uh, disk drives uh, in the mid-1950s and kept uh, innovating that technology so fast that its product costs and what it could sell it for remained very competitive for a very long time. But eventually, like everything else, it became a commodity, especially when computer chips dropped in cost to nothing. And so you could have a vast quantity of storage at minimal cost. Just look at your cell phone. So IBM decided that it's better off with uh, high profit items and not as well off with low profit items, even if it was still making a profit. So they decided to get out of that business and take the money that they would have otherwise spent on it on more profitable uh, activities. $2.6 billion from Lenovo for the PC business, uh, $2 billion from Hitachi uh, with some downstream money as well. This is in sharp contrast to, say, Kodak, uh, which when it <laughs> finally sold off its film business in 2013, it was part of a bankruptcy reorganization. Uh, similarly, GE sold off uh, GE Capital for $26 billion after the 2008 finance and banking collapse. That's a far cry from a decade earlier when it was worth literally 10 times that much. Timing is everything. Uh, what I can say about the PC and the DASD was the fact that they didn't milk it for the very last dollar. When they saw the handwriting on the wall, they knew from prior experience that you sell, the, sell off that piece of the, of the business before it's not worth anything. And sometimes you have less than six months or a year in this industry to do that. But IBM was fortunate. It sold the, these businesses off before it was too late. And that's why it was able to gain a nice return. The other thing that everybody overlooks, particularly with a PC business, is that it was a beautiful uh, uh, negotiation because it allowed IBM to enter the Chinese market in a way that China would have liked through an existing local company that was already trusted, Lenovo, and that knew how to get around and do stuff in China. So in addition to the cash transactions and transfer of people and, and uh, ICAP, IBM gained uh, access to a huge market. We're speaking with historian James Cortada. 
When we come back, I'll ask him to walk us through some of IBM's most difficult moments and to speculate about its uncertain future. Fixing the Future is supported by Comsol, the makers of Comsol multi-physics simulation software. Companies like the Manufacturing Technology Center are revolutionizing the designs of additive manufactured parts by first building simulation apps from Comsol models, allowing them to share their analyses with different teams and explore new manufacturing opportunities with their own customers. Learn more about simulation apps and find this and other case studies at comsol.com slash blog slash apps. We're back with my guest, James Cortada, a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota's Charles Babbage Institute and author of a comprehensive corporate history of IBM. Jim, I mentioned some of IBM's big pivots from tabulators to computers, from mainframes to PCs and servers, from hardware to services and consulting. In each case, the future of the entire company was at stake. That's absolutely correct. Uh, When you leave in a technology company from one platform to another, one model, business model to another, it's very risky. Some people can do it well, others can't. In IBM's case, for example, when it got out of the tabulating business in the, in the 1950s, it had been in that business for a half century, and it owned it. Yet computers were clearly going to be displacing tabulating equipment, so IBM had to get in the computer business, had to learn uh, the technology, had spent 10 years prior to that learning about the technology and participating in in preliminary uh, projects. So when it started the uh, transition to computers, it already knew a great deal about the subject and it was a question of timing, uh, when to enter, how fast, what kind of configurations of equipment, you know, all the basic blocking and tackling. It did that. When it got into the services business in the 1980s and 1990s, again, a very similar thing. You go from uh, trying to sell machines and software to selling uh, hawking our brains, if you will, you know, um, at X number of dollars per hour of consulting. Yet at the same time, uh, holding on to hardware and software sales as desirable. That, again, was a fundamental structural difference. But they had had a decade of experience experimenting and learning. And even then, it took, in each case, a decade to make the move. People don't realize how risky these transitions are. Uh, You know, Microsoft, for example, was late to the Internet and the web, and it almost killed the company. And then instead of learning from that experience, uh, they were even later to the transition to mobile platforms, to cell phones and and tablets. That's correct. And uh, all these companies periodically take a few years to learn how to do it. Well, first they have to learn that they have to do it and accept it. Because there are a lot of food fights within the company about whether we should go or not go. They all go through this. Then they have to learn how to do it. And then they got to go do it. And then they got to convince everybody they did it. That's Microsoft. That's IBM. That's all of them. Kodak uh, failed. Jim, you were at IBM for at least one of these major transitions, uh, which you describe as a corporate near-death experience. But what was it like within the company to live and work through such a tumultuous period? Ha <laughs> You didn't know, for example, whether you're going to get laid off. You didn't know uh, how to develop your career. Should you continue along a traditional line that you had been in or, were you, or in another? 
And it was another, like in consulting, and I jumped into the consulting. I, I bet that consulting was going to grow. You had to learn a whole new profession. So a lot of things that you knew before uh, did not necessarily play out. There was a lot of angst uh, in the company about how do we do this? Uh, how do we take care of our customers, but also how do we take care of our profits and our revenue streams? Very delicate, very difficult to do. A lot of new people were brought in who did not understand IBM's culture, and they had to learn how to deal with IBM. But at the same time, we had to figure out how to work with those folks. So they came from PwC, uh, Arthur Anderson, uh, on and on and on, all, all, the, all the majors. Uh, and that was very difficult to do. And a lot of people didn't make it. You were fortunate enough to spend some hours with Thomas Watson Jr. and uh, talk with him about the initial transition from tabulators to computers. And of course, he wrote about that himself. How would you compare these two transitions uh, into computers on the one hand and away from computer hardware on the other? I would say the transition from tabulators to computers was uh, harder, more radical. It basically required an entirely new set of technology. It required a whole new set of employees and a different business model because the revenue streams, the profit streams and so on were fundamentally different. The only thing that didn't change was culture and the values of the company because they applied in both cases. Uh, in the case of uh, the, the uh, consulting business, the services business, IBM kept holding on to hardware, software, and added consulting. IBM seemed like it was making another pivot with artificial intelligence. After winning at Chess and Jeopardy, it created a new division, Watson, and gave it enormous resources, especially in personnel and in marketing. Even though it was pretty early to this market, it doesn't seem like it can keep up with its competitors. I would argue that the company was slow to get into both cloud computing and artificial intelligence because both things were going on at the same time. It's the Jeopardy phenomena you referred to. It was slow to both. And so now IBM is in catch-up mode, particularly on the cloud side. But it has so much horsepower, so much talent on the artificial intelligence that a little bit of a drag on coming into the market has allowed it to shape a whole series of new product offerings that the others haven't come up with, specifically industry-specific uses of artificial intelligence. That plays to IBM's strength. Yeah, it is interesting to speculate, though, if uh, the equivalent of Amazon Web Services had been developed at IBM first, what would Amazon look like today and what would IBM look like? You know, it's interesting because uh, while I was at IBM, we had conversations about that. It wasn't clear at the time how to do that because... The Amazon uh, formula was, we'll give cloud to anybody who wants it. And we knew from prior experience that just being generic like that wasn't going to work. Because your mother and my mother could show up, you know, and say, hey, I want cloud computing. Well, IBM can't deal with small enterprises when it comes to a technology like that. It has to be for General Motors and so on. Uh, that's where its core strength is. So it wasn't clear in the beginning whether that would work. Secondly... There was a lot of concern about would uh, people moving to the cloud mean that we would lose a lot of hardware, install hardware sales and, and software sales. So the trade-off there, and nobody could quite figure out, either in the industry or within IBM, what the specific cost could be. 
as clearly as management would like. So it was fuzzy. So people kind of drag their feet a little bit. I'll be honest. Jim, every company involved in information processing is a potential target of uh, cyber attacks, cyber terrorism, even cyber war. In a way, the firms we can't afford to lose make up almost a litmus test of the most important companies. If we were to uh, list them ourselves, it would surely include Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. Years ago, IBM would be at the top of that list. Uh, Would IBM still be on the list today? I believe it would be because a lot of the work that it does is behind the scenes, in conference rooms, in data centers that the public doesn't see. You could go to the Department of Defense and have them put together a list, and they would have on that list companies that you and I haven't heard of. But when you ask them, well, what do they do? You go, oh, yes. They definitely have to be on the list. IBM would be on the list because uh, they do so much work to support the, the, the economic national infrastructure, not only of the United States, but of many, many countries. So it's more than just the U.S. Plus also obviously work with the military and NSA and all the other agencies. So yeah, it would make the list. Remember, IBM's number one customer, largest customer for over a century was the, the federal government, the U.S. federal government. And you and I will never know Uh, all the pieces of the business in there. Uh, I mentioned GE earlier. Uh, Was it Dow Jones Company every decade of the 20th century? Uh, No other company can claim that. Uh, Yet, if GE survives at all today, it will be as a much smaller firm with a much narrower mission. IBM as well keeps shrinking while its competitors are growing. Uh, You note in the book that over its long, illustrious history, IBM has generated over a trillion dollars in revenue, But that's almost exactly the same revenue as uh, Google, now Alphabet, uh, in the mere 19 years from 2002 to 2020. Yes. Don't judge companies simply by their revenue size. Uh, Judge the companies by the quality of their revenue, that is the profit, who's spending the money with them. IBM will be a smaller company. There's no question about it. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a poor company. Its profits are pretty high. Its cash flows are, are fabulous. It's got a very strong uh, balance sheet. I wouldn't bet against IBM, but it'll be a smaller company. There's no question about it. Once again, my guest is historian James Cortada. When we come back, I'll ask him about a surprisingly consistent pattern to each of IBM's transitions. Uh, but first, I'd like to say how much we appreciate questions, comments, and suggestions from our listeners. For example, Chris A. writes me after just about every energy-related show with thoughtful reflections of enriched later shows. I can be reached by email at metaphor at IEEE.org or on Twitter at FixTheFuturePod. We also welcome your rating us, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you go to an episode's page on the Spectrum website, you can comment there and subscribe to alerts of new episodes and find links to the people, places, and ideas mentioned in the show. We're back with IBM veteran and historian James Cortada. Jim, you have a set of three graphs in the book that literally chart the three biggest transitions of IBM through the decades. Maybe you can describe it. The three major transitions from, a, if you will, a product and, and a operations point of view is the creation, selling, 
of tabulating equipment from the 1890s to the 1950s. The second major transition is the era of the mainframe. And add in there the PC and, and other, other hardware products. From the 1950s uh, to the end of the 1980s, and then the current period of services, uh, both uh, managerial consulting process and also operational uh, services for IT. And that's the, the period that we're in now. Within each one of those, obviously, you get generations of hardware, generations of services. So, for example, on the services umbrella, we did outsourcing in the 1980s and process engineering in the 1990s. Now we're doing uh, hybrid cloud security and the company's doing artificial intelligence work and what have you. I live from the transition uh, from the mainframe into and through and up to the uh, artificial intelligence uh, period of IBM. These involve, in each case, these are what's graphed on the, on the chart. However, I would also add that in each case, you have different types of employees, different types of skill sets, in some cases, different types of customers as well. Uh, so we could have made a number of, uh, of charts like this. What they all have in common are a couple of messages. Number one, the transitions took a long time. So when somebody tells you IBM trans, uh, transitioned you know, within two or three years, that's nonsense. It took a decade on average in each case. The second thing uh, I would point out is it took its customers the same amount of time because they also had to transition simultaneously with IBM. That's why one did it and the other one did it too because new technology, new forces in the marketplace. So you've got that, uh, that additional uh, transition. What the charts don't say, but is in the text, is that the culture of the company, to a large extent, remained essentially the same until the 1990s when uh, the company decided parts of its corporate culture had atrophied and needed a significant remake. That is a new type of change that IBM is undergoing right now that is hugely different from what it had in the first hundred years. Jim, your book is 621 pages, not counting its end notes and excellent index. Uh, not enough books have indexes at all these days. You spent hundreds of hours in IBM's own archives with the privileged access of an employee. And yet I understand that you're still learning more about IBM each day, in part due to social media. You're getting a lot of interesting comments on the article in Spectrum, I understand. Yeah, let me explain how that works. It was just kind of fun. You know, there are well over 10,000 retired IBM employees on various Facebook accounts. So when an article like this comes out on the three, uh, either on the System 360 or the PC, I make that article available to that community through their various websites. And of course, they immediately jump on it because most of those people had personal experiences with each of those items, right? And it's amazing who comes out of the woodwork. Take the, the, the PC, it was announced in 1981. IBM had been working on that product for about 18 months. Well, obviously one of the things that you do when you're bringing out a new product is figure out, well, how many copies can I sell? Well, the guy who had to, uh, come up with that was on Facebook. And so when he read the article, he said, yeah, I love the article. Uh, oh, by the way, I was the, uh, the lead forecaster on, on the product. 
And he was a little sensitive because uh, one of the things I said in the article is that IBM grossly underestimated uh, how many PCs would be sold because everybody wanted the PC the minute IBM announced it. It was just off the charts. He came back uh, with a little response saying, well, my bosses uh, uh, reduced the forecast. And he didn't want to talk about it anymore. So there's a mystery out there. But we wouldn't have known any of that, right? So there's this tantalizing more research to be done as a result of that little comment. That's fantastic. Well, Jim, it's a, it's a remarkable story of a remarkable company, uh, remarkably well told. Thanks for writing it and for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking with IBM veteran and PhD historian James Cortada, author of the 2019 book, IBM, The Rise and Fall and Reinvention of a Global Icon about IBM's Glorious Past, Struggling Present, and Challenging Future. Fixing the Future is sponsored by Comsol, makers of mathematical modeling software and a longtime supporter of IEEE Spectrum as a way to connect and communicate with engineers. Fixing the Future is brought to you by IEEE Spectrum, the member magazine of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, a professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. This interview was recorded August 5th, 2021 on Adobe Audition via Skype and edited in Audacity. Our theme music is by Chad Crouch. You can subscribe to Fixing the Future on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and wherever else you get your podcasts, or listen on the Spectrum website, which also contains transcripts of all of our episodes. We welcome your feedback on the web or in social media. For Fixing the Future, I'm Stephen Cherry. Cherry.